Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Do you stand for the reading of God's word, please? Luke chapter 2, verse 1, Luke writes this, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. How many have a, a manger scene at home? Most, most of us do. Most Christians do. In the past years, there's been a great resistance to public displays of the nativity scene or manger scenes. I think you understand what I'm talking about. Christians and even other traditionalists want them while very vocal non-Christians, atheists, ACLU lawyers don't want them. The bait would continue, certainly. But ultimately, in some communities, in some places, we do actually find nativity scenes in public places. And sometimes they even have real people and real animals in them. 
There, were, uh, there was a year when we were talking about that in, in terms of our own uh, implementation of that. We thought, let's have a living, a living crash, a living manger scene, but we couldn't find enough volunteers nor animals to be in it. So we said, well, we'll just pass on that. In my house, every Christmas, we've had a manger scene. No doubt all of us have put them up. And these quite simply provide us with a warm and I think wonderful reminder and a holiday experience. I often marvel as I look at a major scene. How could anyone object to this? How could anyone object to this tender scene of a mother and a son hovered over by Joseph and the angels, surrounded by animals, shepherds, and a few gaudily painted wise men. How could people possibly object to this? For many of us, we quite frankly take the scene for granted. And we really don't think about it. We almost become blasé or insensitive to it. It's become really a Christmas decoration. If you look at your notes, I ask you a question. When you look at a manger scene, what do you think? And at the end of the notes, I pose almost the same question. When you look at a manger scene, what will you now think? I want us to think differently. I want us to look with new eyes at a manger scene. What, what are we seeing? What does God mean for us to see when we look at it? We take the time to think about it. We begin to realize some things. First thing is we realize this scene is not normal. It's not normal. We realize that God doesn't want me to view it as some quaint Christmas decoration. And he wants me, quite frankly, to be appalled at the situation. Because when I am, I have to think about the scene. I can't any longer ignore it. The manger scene was not designed to put me in the holiday mood. It was intended to shake me to the roots of my soul. And it should. Which, by the way, is what I believe is the reason for all the fuss and the furor over public manger scenes. It originates from people who, while they don't believe a word necessarily of the Christmas story, they thought about it enough to be disturbed by its implications. And that's where we all ought to find ourselves disturbed by the implications. What does God mean here? Why do we have this? Christmas, think about this. Christmas is the day we celebrate the entrance of the eternal, almighty, omniscient, omnipresent, all-righteous, all-holy, glorious God into our world. 
I don't know about you. That just is awesome. And when we stop and consider this fact, and then we look at that scene of the baby Jesus in the manger, we should scratch our heads and say, what's wrong with this picture? Four words in the account, I believe, should challenge our thinking. Four simple words. Verse 12, what are these words? Lying in a, say that with me, lying in a manger. Does that blow your mind? Who is it that's lying in the manger? God. The God of the ages. The Bible says too, too glorious to look upon. You can't see God. You can't see him face to face and live. He's lying in a feeding trough. The God before whom Moses and Isaiah fell face down and from whom the cherubim hide their faces, he's in a filthy stable in a feeding trough. If this story was simply a myth, fairy tale, we could smile warmly and safely ignore it. But it's not a myth. It's a fact. At the very least, we should find it disturbing. Lying in a manger. Lying in a manger. Those four very familiar, beautiful, magnificent, glorious words describe far more than the place where baby Jesus was laid. See, here's a message from God. It's a parable in four words. A parable that contains more truth than would fit in volumes of books. And these four words, we find the answer to the most pressing questions of life and faith. There are important reasons why the Christ child had to be found lying in a manger. Firstly, it was a sign for the shepherds. That's what the angels said. A sign for the shepherds. At the time of the census decreed by Caesar Augustus, which demanded that all the citizens of the entire Roman Empire had to return to their hometowns to register. Bethlehem, you have to imagine, this tiny little village must have been swollen with people. All of us probably have experienced the mall the day after Thanksgiving. <laughs> the busiest shopping day, right? of the year. Thinking about Bethlehem, multiply, multiply that for an entire town. In the midst of the congested streets, no doubt, homes probably crowded with returning relatives, the inns bursting at the seams. How would a group of shepherds find one child, the child they were seeking? There would no doubt have been 
other mothers, other doubt, uh, no other doubt, uh, other, other babies, babies galore, which, which one was the right one? All the babies, no doubt, would be wrapped in the same kind of cloths, so that wouldn't narrow down their search, would it? No. The sign for the shepherds was that the baby would be what? Lying in a manger. Even in that ancient time, even in that ancient place, a stable for a birthing room and a manger for a crib would have been unusual. The scene is strange, and it was intended to be. Imagine the shepherds entering Bethlehem. Nighttime, eagerly, no doubt, listening for the sounds of a crying baby. They're searching, probably evoked questions and stares from the people. Did this group of rugged sheep herders who've been out in the fields elicit comments as they move through the streets? Undaunted, they continued their quest, searching for the promised sign. And finally, their faithfulness was rewarded. They found the promised Savior, Christ the Lord, in the form of a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a... Yes. Imagine. They hadn't gotten the directions wrong. They weren't on a fool's errand. They weren't the victim of some divine practical joke. The manger was their sign. The heavenly magnet, if you will, that drew them irresistibly. Without that sign, the shepherds had no idea. They would have no compass. They would have no hope. The baby in the manger was the great shepherd who led these sinful men to a carpenter and his young wife and ultimately to himself. The scene. The scene was a promise signed to the shepherds, but it was also a confirmation for Mary and Joseph, for Jesus' parents. What we celebrate with great joy each year must have been a terrible, terrible ordeal for Mary and Joseph, I promise you. Was this what Mary envisioned when Elizabeth, her relative, had prophesied that she would be blessed and greatly honored among women? Surely she didn't expect a parade, but did she expect this? Mary had great faith, but that faith would be challenged when she entered that stable, heavy with child, no doubt exhausted from the long journey, 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, all on foot. Somehow I doubt that this young girl, probably no more than 12 or 13 years old, found her circumstances quaint and inspiring. But could she see beyond? Could she see beyond that dismal scene that greeted her eyes and assaulted her senses? When her labor pains began, 
There was no other woman there, no midwife there to help her. And she and Joseph were left alone in a stable to celebrate the arrival of the heavenly child, promised them with dreams and miracles. I wonder, did she and Joseph ever ask themselves, what's wrong with this picture, God? The Bethlehem Inn was not the Holiday Inn. It was a crude series of stalls built into the side of an enclosure with a fire pit for cooking. It was very sparse, very simple. You and I would be appalled. As dismal as this arrangement was, this was the inn in which there was no room. Think about that. And despite Mary's obvious pregnancy, no one at all offered up their place for her. So she and Joseph ended up in what was most likely a cave of some sort where animals were stabled and where filthy hay and rank animal waste littered the dirt floor. There, Mary goes into labor with a beleaguered Joseph, her only attendant. It was a carpenter, Joseph, who most lightly delivered Christ. And Jesus came into our world, slippery with blood. His warm body greeted, no doubt, with joltingly cold air. You can't recreate the drama of this scene with our nativity scenes, I promise you, no matter how hard you try. And yet, after the birth, God sent shepherds to seek out this lonely little family. And when they arrived, the shepherds shared their angelic vision and the all-important sign they had been given. A sign to the world. A baby lying in a... Not even in a house. Not even in a room, but outside in a cold stable. And yet the baby was right where he was supposed to be, lying in a... And so when they saw these rugged worshipers, these shepherds, sheep herders, did Mary and Joseph sigh in relief? Did the joy of realization flood their souls, washing away any debris of doubt that might have begun to accumulate in their hearts? I think it did. And I think they needed to hear the heavenly pronouncement from the shepherds to know that their present circumstances were holy to God. His plans hadn't gone wrong. His promises hadn't been forgotten. There'd been no divine snafus, if you will. This was precisely the place God chose to showcase his entrance into our world. Wrapped up so tight in swaddling clothes, he could not even move. This grand entrance 
did not fit his person, did not fit his glory. But in it, we begin to see glimpses of his purpose. Are you with me? You see, he had to be found lying in a manger because there was no room for God in the world he had made. Actually, it all makes sense. When God returned to his creation, it was fitting that bands play and parades march. True? Should bands have played and parades march? Did they? No. No. Because his return was not good news. Not in this earthly neighborhood. God had long ago been exiled from the hearts and the minds of most people. No rulers were willing to step down for him. No kings were willing to make room for his sovereign kingship. No palaces opened their gates to his, to his in welcome. So God entered the world in the one place no one coveted, in the one place no one cared about, a place where no one would fight to keep him out, a place, in fact, that no one even noticed. The God of the universe spent his first day of humanity lying in a, in a cave in Bethlehem. And yet the eternal God lying helplessly in that manger is an object lesson impossible to ignore. This scene puzzles the critics, and rightly so. It's not uncommon to hear critics of Christianity speak of a wrathful, vengeful, judgmental God of the Old Testament. Well, if God was so loving, you've heard that, no doubt. But would such a God suffer himself to be disgraced by lying helplessly in a manger? No, the manger scene reveals as much about the mercy and the love of God as do any of his words or acts of compassion recorded in the New Testament. There was no room for them in the inn. Familiar words, true? Familiar words that ring out across the centuries. No room for them at the inn. Yet in truth, there was no room for him anywhere. And this scene, forever frozen in time, reminds us not only of his character, but also of ours. The creator returned to a decidedly hostile world. Not with his divine wrath prepared to destroy all that would treat him with contempt, but in divine mercy, prepared to endure all that we could throw at him. Could God's attitude of mercy and love toward our hostile, rebellious world have been any clearer than when he was found 
lying in a manger. When we're having difficulty, maybe, conjuring up the appropriate Christmas spirit, we need only picture the God of eternity too glorious for mortal eyes to look upon and live, enduring that filthy, incredibly humiliating setting. It was his love for us that put him in that manger. And though he despised the shame of it, could he say, I love you any clearer? Is there truly something wrong with this picture? If I didn't have some sense of the love of God, I'd be forced to laugh out loud. But instead, I begin to sense a profound wisdom in this act. For as I picture him lying in a manger, I suddenly see something I'd never under, understood once before. You see, he had to be found lying in a manger so we could understand. If the infinite, perfect God had arrived in the company of thousands of angels descending from heaven in chariots of gold while the angels sang, holy, holy, holy is our God, he would still have been humbling himself. But I wouldn't have understood it. I would never have gotten the idea that God was willing to intentionally demean his perfect glory to save somebody like me. In our world, important people tend to associate with other important people, don't they? They seek each other out. And we all know that being seen with the right people in the right places can take you far, can't it? So it's with no little confusion that we view God humbling himself so drastically before us. Us. You and me. We were the reason he left his glory. We'll never, never really understand it. We know what he did, but we really won't be able ever to comprehend it. Not in all eternity. When someone greater than us humbles him or herself before us in some way, it's a powerful gesture, isn't it? We're amazed. We're moved that someone of such stature and such status would do such a thing. Or even when someone gives us a gift that we don't expect or don't deserve, we say things like, for me? Oh, you shouldn't have. We're touched by the gesture. So when I think about my God in a manger, I shake my head in utter disbelief. But I'm so grateful at the same time. God humbled himself in a way that even a common shepherd would understand. Or a child. Or a tax collector. Or a fisherman. Or a fallen woman. 
or a self-righteous Pharisee, or me. While lying in a manger, God was making an announcement to all who would come to him. It was a silent message. A silent message that told us we desperately needed to know about our God. What is that? Anyone could approach him. Anyone could approach him. Can common people typically visit palaces of newborn kings uninvited? Not hardly, no. Hardly ever invited anyway, right? But kings and princes can visit mangers. And so can bakers and weavers and wise men and shopkeepers and priests and children and cattle and sheep. This reality is so simple that it's easy to miss. The God child was announcing in a dramatic way that he had come to be available. He'd come to be accessible. God. He hadn't come to isolate himself or only to associate with important people. He'd come to be available to all. He'd come to mingle with all. And to receive us with open arms and put himself at our disposal. All this he conveyed by simply being found lying in a manger. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, this gold box, if you will, that housed the, what's known as the Shekinah glory of God, Look at the contrast. The Ark of the Covenant, and yet a common feeding trough for animals, hosted the God King himself. Why? Why, we may ask. Why, indeed? For us. For us. You could not go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. Only one person could do it, the high priest, on one day out of the year. Point being, God was inaccessible. But now, he's what? He is accessible. Oh, the wisdom of God. He humbled himself before us so that we could realize that there was nothing God wouldn't do to bring us back into relationship with himself. Come to me. Come to me. Jesus says it so perfectly and wonderfully in Matthew's gospel. You who are weary and burdened, come to me. I will give you what? Rest. Have you ever been tempted to blurt out, to shout something like, Lord, you don't know what it's like to be humiliated like this? When I'm tempted to do that, he points to the manger. Have you ever cried out, Lord, I deserve better than this? He points us to the manger. 
When we tell the Lord, you see all these injustices in my life, why don't you change them? You have the power. He reminds us of the manger. Beloved, this is not the stuff of Christmas cards. This is the stuff of transformation. You cannot come and realize these things without being changed, without being transformed, without realizing who he is, what he did, how he did it, why he did it. Mary and Joseph may have thought, what's wrong with this picture? Not a thing. Not a thing. Though the manger is disturbing, and it should be, the message it brings to us is anything but. For this primitive scene of our God, our God lying in a manger, reminds us of this very precious truth. We are no longer alone. He is Emmanuel, God with us. When you look at your manger scenes, hopefully you will think differently about them now and appreciate them so much more. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your grace. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for this account. Thank you for the object lesson, for the purpose, Lord, of this manger scene. Help us to look in awe that you, the creator, the God, the Lord of all creation, humbled yourself to the point of coming and being born in that manger. Lord, keep us from complaining and whining and moaning. Help us to see, Lord, that you humbled yourself. We can humble ourselves. We can trust you. Holy Spirit, we ask you to search us. And if there's any wrong way in us this morning, that you would convict us of those things. That we would confess them, repent of them. Lord, you cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank you. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.